electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thanks very much, Scott. I'm Dominic Chewy, and here's what's ahead for the show. The casino mentality, carried away, and extreme euphoria. Those are just some of the words two famed investors use to describe the markets as they stand today. As earnings kick into high gear, will they be proven right, or will the numbers justify those high multiples? Plus, investors are piling to one area of the market at the fastest pace in a decade as President Biden takes over. We'll tell you what it is and what, if you should get in or not. And then in a moment of truth for Intel. Gaga for Google, one less player in the smartphone wars, and welcome to e-commerce, baby boomers. That's all ahead, but let's begin with the markets as they stand right now. It does look like at this stage you are seeing markets that are relatively flat for the session as stocks continue to march higher because of those valuations. Now, look at the Dow, down just about 19 points at this stage, pretty much flat, 31,169 the last trade there. The unchanged for the S&P 500, 38.51, and outperformance in the Nasdaq. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a few moments here. Stocks are continuing to march higher. Valuations are now being called into question with words like bubble and euphoria, overly optimistic. Check this out. Facebook, Netflix, and Alphabet. Over the last week, it's a resurgence of FANG stocks. Those stocks are up 10% in one week for Facebook, 14% for Netflix, and Alphabet's up 10% to a record high as well. Contrast that to some of the value-oriented sectors we've been talking so much about for the last three months. Oil and gas ETFs, the Spider Oil and Gas ETF ticker XOP, down 5%. The Van Ector Oil Services ETF is down 8, 9%. And the bank ETFs, yes, we had a big week of earnings here, but that bank ETF is now down 4% in a week. So is that value trade maybe coming undone? Are investors going back towards what worked over the last several years and that's mega cap technology. Now, remember, these stocks continue to march higher. These valuations are in question. We've got bubble euphoria, overly optimistic, being thrown around in the lexicon. Earlier today, two famed investors echoing some of those thoughts about the current state of the market and the heights that they're at. A bubble is a function of uh, demonstrated enthusiasm. And uh, so you look for signs that individual investors are getting carried away. Um, they're becoming euphoric. They're throwing away their uh, their fears and their reservations. They're borrowing money. They're trading more shares. And the nice thing about this bubble is every indicator uh, confirms it. The Nasdaq did go down 82 percent in 2000, and it feels a lot like 1999 to me. <laughs> So, you know, I think people should exercise caution and be careful not to be so levered long to this to this equity market right now. Those are some cautious words coming from two big investors. Joining me now, are Art Hogan, chief market strategist at National Securities. Also, James McDonald, CEO and chief investment officer at Hercules Investments. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being here. James, I'll, I'll begin with you. When you have Jeremy Grantham, a lot of people pay attention to his newsletter, his words. And you've got Barry Sternlich both saying things like bubble, euphoria. How does that make you feel as an investor? Well, 
as an investor, it makes me feel prescient because I've been saying the same thing for the past 10 months, actually. And we're at a point now where U.S. private sector assets are currently 6% of GDP, the highest ever, and an increase of 20% over last year this time. Total debt now is 120% of GDP, also the highest level, and 50% higher than it was last year. And the Fed's actions have been more successful at inflating asset prices versus actual GDP growth. We are now sitting at a point in time with valuations relative to earnings, relative to price to book, uh, relative to sales that have only been approached just prior to the biggest stock market crashes in history. Uh, and so those comments are appropriate uh, and we're ready. All right. So, so James, I'm going to throw this one to Art here because the counterpoint to yours is if you've been saying these things for the last 10 months, you would have missed out on a massive rally in the stock market during that time span to these levels right now. So, Art, what is the justification for owning stocks over the last, say, year when people were already talking about bubbles and valuations this same time in 2019 and 20? Yeah, and, and, and one of the two people that uh, you previewed before has been talking about a bubble since 2012, 13, 14, 15, every year. This is a recurrent theme. I think what we have to look at here is what is the market trying to price in? The market's trying to price in better economic activity. I think this is the first time in 10 years that we've seen earnings estimates heading into a fourth quarter go higher. 69% of companies upped their uh, their guidance for the fourth quarter. And when we look at guidance for uh, 2021, that's likely to increase as well. I think we're going to have an explosion of economic activity as we head into the back half of next year that's not priced in the market right now. And I think simply using a barometer that is P.E. ratios from the last 25 years versus what P.E. ratios likely should look like for companies that are asset light and, and where interest rates are extremely low and likely stay there for a while is the wrong way to approach this. I think people and investors lose more money preparing for crashes than they do sticking to a diversified portfolio and sticking to their game plan. That's what financial advisors always tell their clients. You want to be invested, right? Because if you miss out on a few of those big days on the upside, you're going to miss out on a lot of those returns. James, you're a guy who buys and sells stocks for a living. You construct portfolios. What kinds of assets then do you put into the portfolios that you market to investors? Well, we have to be cautious. And there are new asset classes uh, to Art's point, there are different ways to invest now than there were 24 years ago, uh, but we're still using Wall Street guidance as a clue. And historically, analysts have consistently overestimated earnings by over 30% for the last eight years consecutively. Every single year, actual earnings come in less than the expectation. And so we can't always use Wall Street uh, so-called uh, forward guidance as a clue. We are putting people in volatility. Um, if someone hires me today uh, and making money for them, I've got to put money where it's low, uh, expect it to grow, and we're buying volatility here uh, as it is at an all-time low, similarly to how it was last year. Uh, this is not a buy and hold. This is a buy and be prepared for the worst. Uh, if the worst doesn't come, volatility is still a great valuation here. It's still a great level. We like going forward 5G. We like artificial intelligence. We like green energy. We are really excited about the innovation that can come around e-commerce, getting things into people's homes. And that last quarter mile uh, through technology, through autonomous vehicles, there's a lot of exciting areas. Uh, but as we are at levels that have never been reached and at a pace, particularly in the last 90 days uh, of ascension in this market that's never been seen before, it's an extremely cautious time for investors. Arthur, what's curious about what James has just said in terms of his thematic elements 
is many of those elements in artificial intelligence, 5G wireless, green energy, are arguably some of the most overvalued parts of the market right now. Where exactly then do you find value in an environment where the market is up consistently now to record highs? No, that's such a great point. And James is correct. We like a lot of the thematics that he's talking about. Where I would differ with him on that is that, and I agree with you, Dom, as, as well. When we think about valuations, especially in electronic vehicles and, and some of these you know, SPACs that have come out and say the word battery and all of a sudden they have you know, multi-billion dollar uh, market caps, I just think that that's, there, there are pockets of irrational enthusiasm in some pretty good thematics. So for us, we'd rather play the 5G theme. And I certainly think as part of your growth portfolio, you want to be invested in 5G. I think you want to be invested in uh, security software. I think you want to be invested in uh, cloud computing. But I certainly uh, acknowledge that there are valuation gaps where you don't want to be invested. There are certain penny stocks that have run up for no fundamental reason. There are companies like GameStop and BlackBerry that have exploded for no fundamental reasons. So you do have to be careful about pockets of uh, irrational exuberance. But I think in general, when we look at the S&P 500, it's going to be higher at the end of this year. And I think earnings estimates for next year are understated and will likely have to be moved higher. All right. Arthur Hogan, James McDonald. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate it. All right. Well, speaking of a hot part of the market here, cannabis stocks are taking a hit today, but they've rallied a lot this year on increased hopes of legalization on a large scale or at least decriminalization at the federal level. Now that Democrats control the White House and both chambers of Congress, but have some of those names run too high too quickly? Just look at some of those and you'll say, whoa, what a year for 2020 into 2021. For more now, I'm joined by Vivian Azer, senior research analyst over at Cowan. Vivian, the pot stock trade has been probably one of the hottest in 2021. What's driving all of that optimism? It's been a tremendous start to the year. And, and really, you know, the, the end of 2020 was was good for the stocks, too, with the um, outcome of um, six different ballot initiatives across five states, 100 uh, percent of which passed. But, you know, the, the start to 21 really does reflect optimism, as you pointed out, um, for some progress um, in the form of decriminalization, we think, um, at the federal level now that the Democrats control the Senate after the Georgia runoffs. What's the likelihood that we will see a wave of legislation at the state and federal level that will make the total addressable market for marijuana, for cannabis, one where the valuations are then justified? So at, at the state level, um, you know, there have been some hiccups in New Jersey, but but New Jersey will ultimately legalize adult use, as will Arizona, Montana and South Dakota. Um, state legislatures can make more progress, too. So um, Governor Cuomo has been very clear about his aspiration to legalize adult use. And he introduced that in his budget, which needs to get finalized by April 1st of this year. That would certainly um, be meaningful in terms of incremental revenue to our TAM. We also contemplate Connecticut Rhode Island and possibly Pennsylvania, though the state legislature looks to be pretty contentious um, and not a lot of bipartisan um, progress early days um, in this session. From a federal standpoint, um, you're right. There will be a lot of legislation. You know, you start with a clean slate um, when the the new Congress starts, and so they you know redraft all the legislation that already existed. And so, if you think back to what was on the table in 2020, you've got the Safe Banking Act, you've got the States Act, which is a decriminalization bill, and then you had the More Act, which would be a legalization bill. You'll recall that late last year, the House did vote on the More Act. We view that as as generally symbolic. We think the States Act, the decriminalization 
education bill with some modifications is the most likely to pass. Um, we think the Moore Act is just awfully um, progressive um, for the first piece of legislation that would pass federally. Where, where exactly is this market? What's the size of this market, say, in the next five years? I, I look at this because many of these stocks, there, there's not a lot of clarity with regard to just how much of the business they can take. What will be that total size of market for the cannabis industry in the United States if all of these trajectories play out at the state and federal level? So uh, we estimate that um, legal adult use and medical sales were about $20 billion uh, in the U.S. in 2020. Just factoring in state-level changes for the nine states that I outlined would double the marketplace from $20 to $40 billion. And that does not contemplate um, any kind of incremental progress from the States Act. And I would note, you know, while the stocks have had a good run, amongst the U.S. operators that are, of course, listed in Canada, the most expensive names are trading at about, you know, seven to a seven and a half times forward revenues. But to put that in context, you know, I also cover beverages and, you know, Monster Energy Drinks is trading at nine times. Brown Foreman, the maker of Jack Daniels, is trading at 10 times. And those companies don't have nearly the potential for positive earnings revisions like our U.S. cannabis companies do, because we have not factored in um, New Jersey adult use sales into our models yet, because we don't have clarity on timing. So, you know, the seven times is based on, you know, the marketplace today, and it doesn't factor in the incremental revenue opportunities we see over the next five years. Vivian, we've just got a, a couple moments left here. Are, are there are there companies out there that that have caught your attention as ones that that will benefit perhaps outperformance wise over the rest of the industry in the in the coming months? Our favorite idea is um, Green Thumb Industries, and we also like Cureleaf Holdings and Cresco Labs. All right, Cresco Labs is one of those topics as well. Vivian Azer at Cowan, thank you very much for your thoughts. We appreciate it. All right, well, coming up on the show, Muni Madness. Investors are piling into the market on hopes of a new big stimulus package. But what happens if it stalls or perhaps worse? It can't make it through Congress. We've seen that happen before. We'll discuss. Plus, Eli Lilly saying today its antibody drug prevented COVID-19 in nursing homes. We will speak exclusively with the company about that study and when we could see a bigger rollout of those treatments. The exchange is back in two minutes. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. President Biden's $1.9 trillion relief plan is causing massive moves in the municipal bond market. Investors are piling into those bonds, anticipating potentially billions of dollars in stimulus to cash-strap local governments. Now, in the days following the Georgia Senate elections, investors plowed $2.5 billion into muni bond funds. And according to Lipper, these inflows are the third biggest on record. Here to discuss the direction of that muni market under the Biden administration is Mark Paris, chief investment officer and head of municipal strategies for Invesco's fixed income group. Mark, you thank you very much for joining us here. The muni, here, the muni bond market, it's not something that we talk about often. 
but it literally is billions and billions of investor dollars flowing in. What exactly is driving it? We talked about the administration. What is it about the administration that gets muni investors excited right now? Well, I think, Dominic, there's a bunch of factors working our favor. Yes, we do have a Democratic-controlled Senate, House, uh, and the presidency, and the feeling is that we will get a good stimulus bill. Uh, The feeling is that that will help states and localities, which really wasn't talked about the first time. But the other thing is that there's certainly a perception now that taxes are going to go up a little bit more. Whether or not that truly happens, I don't know, but I think investors understand that the money that you make on munis is what you keep. It's tax-exempt. The market is strong. Fundamentally, it's very strong technically from a flow standpoint. And I think that investors realize that where, you know, where you can get, you know, one of the biggest bangs for your buck and not have to write a check to the IRS is in munis. And if the perception continues to be that taxes are going to go higher, I think we're going to continue to see a very strong year in muni flows. It, It seems so counterintuitive. We know how the struggles are for state and local governments, especially in some of the coastal areas, some of the bigger revenue type state profiles. How exactly then do investors get beyond that? Why are they so optimistic if they know that there are these big hurdles that can only really be solved with massive amounts of taxpayer aid coming down the pike? Well, Dominic, I don't think it's only taxpayer aid. I think that states have a lot of levers that they can pull. They do have access to the market. Even during the worst of the pandemic, uh, the Metropolitan Transit Authority was able to borrow. The state of Illinois was able to borrow. There was the municipal liquidity facility that a few people uh, tapped into. And municipalities can raise taxes. They can raise state and local taxes. Uh, Localities can raise property taxes. So issuing paper, raising taxes, that's another thing. The other thing is that they weathered the storm fairly well. They had high uh, days cash on hand, rainy day funds. Uh, You look at things like airports and toll roads. uh, They were well uh, in, in good shape for this pandemic. So there's a lot of levers that they can pull, not just the stimulus. I think they're waiting to see what the stimulus number looks like. If it's a good number, then maybe they'll have to raise local taxes uh, a little bit less. But look, the economy is going to come back. Uh, The vaccine is going to proliferate through the population. And when that happens, I I think you're going to see municipalities feel a lot better about their finances. It'll be longer. It'll take a little bit more time. But we didn't see a lot of defaults in the marketplace. We didn't even see a tremendous amount of downgrades in the marketplace. Municipalities, whether the storm fairly well, and they do have multiple levels, not just to wait on the stimulus. So you, you mentioned you mentioned you know some you know public works projects, stadium type things. You mentioned taxpayers a lot. That focuses on revenue type project bonds versus general obligation or taxation type bonds. Where exactly do investors in the muni market go for the best relative values and outlook? Is it for cities and state municipalities? Is it for waterworks? Is it for utility type bonds? What exactly is it? So I think we're going to see some infrastructure dollars come come towards the muni market. I think that's one place where there's consensus between Democrats and Republicans. And I think that'll be a good place uh, for issuance in the market. But as far as where investors should be, yes, we do like the essential services of the muni market. You wake up in the morning, you turn the lights on, you own the power company. You go to brush your teeth, you own the water company. You go to work, you drive on that toll road that we own uh, as as well. And we do believe that, you know, essential services are going to come back right now. We're not going to airports. We're not riding on the trains. Uh, We're not doing a lot of the public transportation, uh, but we are going to be doing that soon. And I think that's a great area for investors to be focused on between that 
and what we get from possibly an infrastructure bill. I think those will be good places for investors to focus on, as well as, you know, some of the state and local governments where the credits are actually, you know, fairly strong. If you're buying a single A, double A uh, state or locality, I think you're going to be just fine as far as the fundamentals go. Just a couple seconds left here. Is there any trend you see geographically to where those better municipalities are? Is it certain parts of the country, certain areas? I think there are places that you do have to watch out for a little bit. There's a lot of debt in my home state of New Jersey. Illinois is always uh, in in the headlines. It really comes down to really good credit research. And if you're doing really good credit research or with the manager that's doing really good independent credit research, I think you're going to be just fine. All right. Mark Paris at Invesco, thank you very much for bringing us up to speed on everything in the muni market right now. We appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Well, coming up on the show, regulation fear. What regulation fear? Alphabet hits an all-time high as investors and analysts ignore Washington and bet on clicks. Plus, dead money or ready for a return. We'll look at what could be next for Intel as they get ready to report their numbers. And don't forget, you can always watch us live on the go using the CNBC app. The Exchange will be right back after this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome back to The Exchange. Markets right now holding very steady, as you can see, just about flat for the Dow, up about six points. The S&P up by roughly two points. We'll call it flat. And the Nasdaq outperforming up by roughly one half of one percent. Let's check the sector movers behind me. As you can see here, we are seeing some green, mostly for technology and discretionary. Meanwhile, the underperformers so far, as you can see here, financials, materials and energy, some of those so-called value oriented sectors. Now, here are some of the other movers at this hour. You've got shares of Ford going to the highest level since 2018, as you can see there. The stock has had a massive run up 30 percent in just one month. Competitor General Motors also seeing a massive run up there, rallying 35 percent in that one month span. American Eagle shares moving higher despite announcing it will close at least 200 stores in an effort to cut costs. It will now refocus its attention to its airy business. And then finally, Union Pacific falling despite a very solid beat on profits and revenues. The company giving a positive outlook in nearly all of the markets it services. The stock did hit a record high earlier this month, so we could just be seeing some of that profit taking in what's been a very hot transportation sector so far. Now let's send it over to Sue Herrera, who's got a CNBC News update. Good afternoon, Sue. Good afternoon, Dom. Great to see you. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. The Biden administration is reportedly proposing a five-year extension of a key nuclear weapons treaty with Russia. The new START treaty is set to expire next month. On Capitol Hill, Transportation Secretary nominee Pete Buttigieg says the country has a generational opportunity to create jobs, rebuild the nation's infrastructure, and limit climate change. A New York state judge has rejected the NRA's attempts to dismiss or move a lawsuit seeking the group's dissolution. This just six days after the NRA declared bankruptcy and said it would reincorporate in Texas. 
And Bernie Sanders' mittens that he wore to the inauguration yesterday have become an Internet sensation. The grumpy, chic hand warmers were made by a teacher in Vermont. She says she could not be happier. They have gone viral, and she could probably double her teacher's salary if she took some orders. So it's an Internet sensation. I will say this. Some of our artistic followers on Twitter have now inserted Bernie's mittens into some shots of us around CNBC. So (laughs) head over to my Twitter feed. You'll see some photoshopped images of Bernie's mittens hanging around CNBC. I will go right to it. All right, Sue Herrera, thank you very much. Coming up ahead on the show, another breakthrough in the battle against COVID-19. Eli Lilly says its new drug prevents the disease in nursing homes. We will speak exclusively with the company about the breakthrough and its plans moving forward. And speaking of the vaccine, are airlines optimistic that this is officially the start of a turnaround? We will hear exclusively from United Airlines CEO about rebuilding the business in the second half of 2021. Welcome back to the show. We've got some good news in the fight against COVID-19. A new study has found that one of Eli Lilly's antibody drugs significantly reduces COVID-19 related illnesses in at least one vulnerable part of the population. Our own Meg Terrell joins us now with that story. And it's all about the elderly, Meg. That's right, Don. We know that nursing home residents are among the most vulnerable to COVID-19. And Eli Lilly ran a really interesting trial of its antibody drug to see if they could prevent COVID-19 in this population in nursing homes that had outbreaks. And to do this, they actually used these cool uh, mobile vans for these clinical trials where they sent them to nursing homes that had outbreaks, administered these antibody drugs to try to prevent people from getting sick. And what they found in the trial is that in residents of these nursing homes, they could reduce that risk by up to 80 percent. But there are a lot of questions about how best to use these antibody drugs. And to help us answer them is Dr. Daniel Skowronski. He is the chief scientific officer of Eli Lilly, and he joins us now. Uh, Dan, thanks for being with us. You know, tell us about the study you run, what ran, what you found, and also the fact that, you know, we're trying to get vaccines to nursing homes right now. How do you see your antibody drugs fitting into that whole paradigm? Yeah, thanks, Meg. Great, Great to be with you today. You know, uh, since the beginning of this pandemic, we've been focused on nursing homes, the vulnerable population there. And and as you know, uh, almost 40 percent of the deaths that we've had in the United States are people in nursing homes. And we were uh, approached with an idea really from NIH and National Institute of Health and and their collaborators to see whether we could try a prevention trial in nursing homes. So we we went into the the nursing homes and assisted living facilities, offered residents and staff an opportunity to participate in research where we randomized them to get uh, this neutralizing antibody ban, lenivimab or placebo. And then we followed for eight weeks uh, to see what happened. And what we found was among people who got the drugs, statistically significantly less um, infection with COVID-19 and less symptomatic disease. It, it was most pronounced in nursing home residents, where in the, the actual residents, we had an 80% reduction in the, in the risk uh, in a given facility of, of getting symptomatic disease. That's hugely meaningful. And uh, uh, we also saw um, fewer deaths. Uh, so we, we think even in this study, we were able to save lives, uh, which is uh, incredibly uh, um, heartwarming in, in this population. So uh, the, the next question that you raise is, is if this is authorized by the FDA, and, and that's certainly the next step to discuss with them, 
um, how do we make sure this this is available uh, to residents at nursing home? What we envision is uh, really a, a rapid response in these facilities where this is not a replacement for vaccination. It's not a, a choice. Uh, it's for people who haven't been vaccinated where there is an outbreak happening uh, and there's other residents or staff that are infected. Um, and now this could uh, potentially offer uh, an immediate response uh, to that outgoing out outbreak. And then hopefully uh, over time, the, the residents all, all will get vaccinated. What is your take on the new administration's um, embrace of antibody drugs um, as a solution for COVID-19? You know, we heard from the new CDC director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, earlier this week saying they're not a panacea for outpatient treatment because they're just too hard. You know, some people who are connected or who can figure out how to do it can get access to these now as a treatment early in the course of COVID if they're at high risk. But everybody, you know, not everybody who could be eligible is, is able to get them. Is, do you think there's support from the Biden administration to facilitating more access to antibody drugs? Sure. Yeah, I'm confident that the new administration will, will do everything in their power to bring all vaccines and treatments to as many patients as, as possible. Uh, I think one of the uh, obstacles here, you know, is is that it is relatively complicated to administer infusion. Although we were able to do it, as you pointed out, with a with a small group of people who, who turned up in a van and 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 were able to set this up. Um, but when you combine that with skepticism from physicians, who still say, some physicians might still say, "Is there enough data or not?" Uh, that makes it really hard. I, I think over the last uh, a few months, we've seen more and more data about the power of neutralizing antibodies. This is a large study. It involved more than a thousand uh, participants. Uh, phase three trial statistically significant. I, I think that will add to the body of evidence and the surety that, that we have that these antibodies are an important tool. With that, I think doctors and hospitals will, will go that extra mile to, to make sure they can administer it to as many uh, people as, as possible. Accordingly, over the last mm. uh, few weeks, especially, we've seen utilization of these monoclonal antibodies for treatment uh, in the outpatient setting uh, really uh, increasing quite dramatically. We, we get calls every day from uh, people and, and facilities telling us about the, the results that they're getting. Well, Dan, we just got just about a minute left, and I'm sorry to ask you a complicated question with not very much time, sure. but these variants, you know, where everybody's worried about them. We, we talked to Dave Ricks, your CEO, who mentioned that the variant associated with South Africa uh, may be of concern to how well bamlinivimab, your antibody, works. Are you looking at that? Are you working on developing new antibodies in case that's a problem? Yeah, they, no, that's a, it's a really important question, Meg. Ba based on all of the surveillance that we have right here in the United States right now, Bamlinivimab is effective against 99.9% plus uh, of the strains that are circulating. And the remainder of, of less than a percent are hit by our combination therapy, which is under review uh, at the FDA for emergency use authorization. So uh, I think we're good right now. Um, but the threat uh, is looming, and, and that is variants such as the South Africa variant, which just have so many mutations in the spike protein they threaten the, the efficacy of, of all of the, the monoclonal antibodies, even uh, antibodies that people make in response to infection with the original strain uh, may not be uh, effective against this, this variant. So we are working. We have antibodies in our labs um, that, that will neutralize the South African variant. We're ready to move those forward. Uh, and we're watching if this really catches on and, and comes uh, um, becomes a, a global threat. Uh, of course, uh, we'll respond quickly with, with new antibodies. All right. Well, Dr. Dan Skovronsky, we appreciate you being here. We look forward to hearing about next steps uh, and we'll talk with you soon. Thank you.
All right, Meg, doctor, thank you very much for that report. Thank you very much for that. Well, Bob Swan's last earnings report at Intel. We've got Gaga for Google and a big chunk of smartphone market share could soon be up for grabs. All that and more coming up in today's Rapid Fire. The Exchange will be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It's time for Rapid Fire and here with their takes John Fort, Deirdre Bosa, and Mike Santoli. Gentlemen and lady, thank you very much for being here. Our first topic of the day, the future of Intel. The beaten down chipmaker reports fourth quarter results after the bell today as incoming CEO Pat Gelsinger is set to take over the company later on next month. Now, he is replacing Bob Swan, who has experienced some big blows since taking the reins back in 2019, including massive chip delays and the end of a 15-year partnership with Apple. And it shows on the tape as well. Intel's down nearly 3% in the past year, while other chip makers, as you can see there, big green arrows. They're soaring. NVIDIA is up 119%. John Fort, is this the beginning of the end of Intel's pain? Boy, hard to say, Don. That is the question. I mean, because Pat Gelsinger, here's a guy who almost literally grew up at Intel. He was a teenager uh, in, in rural Pennsylvania before he came uh, to, to Intel, literally as a teenager, spent 30 years there before leaving. Now he's coming back. And uh, a couple of years ago, I basically suggested that he would be an interesting candidate for the top job at Intel. And he said, no, thanks. He responded to me on Twitter, said software is the future. Well, I think software is potentially the future in the chip space as well, especially given what's happening in the enterprise and in the cloud. So I'm really eager to hear what his game plan is for Intel beyond the obvious manufacturing issues that they're having for working with the Amazons, the Microsofts in the cloud, and then those like Apple that want to design their own chips and peel off from the Intel path. Mike Santoli, the Intel story has been one where there have been attractive qualities. It's a value-oriented company. It pays a decent-sized dividend. What exactly then gets investors excited about a company like Intel? Well, there has to be a persuasive message that they've, in fact, found a way to redevelop or maintain an edge somewhere. Because the way the market is valuing the stock is really in almost runoff mode. It's like a 7% free cash flow yield, if you want to think about it that way. It's like, you know, 13 times free cash flow, what they're producing today. This is a company that has spent 10 to $15 billion every single year on CapEx. And the stock has been sideways for three or four years. Very tough for tech companies to get out of that value mode where they're considered to be, uh, you know, kind of zero growth or very low growth. So I do think uh, whether, in fact, they can say that you know, the design piece is going to be their edge in terms of the various emerging chip areas and they can do something on the manufacturing side that is, uh, makes them a little less capital intensive, we'll see. All right, Intel results after the closing bell today, guys. Next up here, we've got The Street. Loving Google Alphabet. The stock is at a record high. Piper Sandler naming Alphabet its top pick, giving it an overweight rating and a $2,056 price target, saying in its note that Alphabet is much more than just a digital ad name or a machine, writing Alphabet looks more like a diversified Internet technology ETF levered to mobile apps and software and video and cloud, etc. Piper also shrugged off the idea of regulatory pressures being an issue last week. The B of A analysts over there named Alphabet their top fang pick for 2021. The shares are up just 10% in one week. Deirdre, can Google be stopped? 
<laughs> yes, Dom, it can be stopped. And regulators are certainly working on that. When you read these notes, regulation is almost like an afterthought. I was reading the Piper Sandler one. They had at the end, it says regulatory doesn't look like an issue, dot, 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 in brackets, yet. Um, what I worry about is whether investors are perhaps complacent. Regulation isn't going to be likely is not going to be this one moment where the company is broken up, but it's going to happen over time. And we are already seeing this happen. Google has been fined, what, more than $10 billion in total on either side of the Atlantic. That hasn't done much. But the next phase of regulation is looking at structural change. We know that Europe is doing this. Um, the draft rules that were put out last month were some of the most aggressive since GDPR. And we don't know if this is going to result in actual action. But I would just argue that it is treated much like an afterthought. And even with the Biden administration coming in, as some think that it's going to be more friendly towards big tech, it is going to be really hard to stop this momentum that um, has been building over the last few years. John Ford, I, I remember kind of the earlier days in my career when I talked about Microsoft in the same way that we talk about Alphabet today from a regulatory risk standpoint. Facebook has been a more recent example of that. Mega cap technology seems to overcome all of these hurdles why is it that Alphabet is maybe not going to do it, as Deirdre says? Well, I mean, it, it overcomes those eventually. But Microsoft went through a very long dry season. You can see it in the stock chart between uh, 2000 and about three, four, five years ago. Um, and I think the threat, the danger for Alphabet, for Google, is not that their business completely falls apart under regulation or something else. It's that they lose their mojo. They lose that sense of investor belief that they're in the lead and growing. So I, I think the danger is that Amazon continues to lead in the cloud, that Amazon moves into advertising even more aggressively and starts to have more uh, success there. And investors just go, eh, maybe Google's yesterday's news. They don't deserve this kind of multiple. Because Microsoft was growing revenue and profits gangbusters throughout the 2000s and beyond. They just didn't get the valuation credit. Where exactly, Mike Santoli, does Alphabet unlock that value? Where do they get that investor kind of optimism and excitement going for them? What do they have to show? Well, what's interesting is that I, I would argue that investors are not very worried about the regulatory threat because the story with Google from, from a Wall Street point of view has always been, just please let the core black box algorithm run. Like, stop doing all this other stuff. Stop trying to enlarge the empire. We just want you to be a dominant uh, in search and essentially monetize the overall move into digital advertising. So maybe the idea uh, that they do have their, their sales trimmed a little bit is not the worst thing in the world. But of course, they have to show that, 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 that core advantage is not under threat, that their, their basic ability to monetize search is not going to be uh, lessened by whatever scrutiny there is, whether it's how they privilege their own search results or something else. It is like owning a tech ETF these days, for sure. Alphabet, that story there. All right, next up, we're going to stick in technology. LG, the Korean company, reportedly close to ditching its overall smartphone business as it struggles against competitors like who else? Huawei, Samsung, Apple. In a company memo obtained by the Korea Herald and verified by The Verge, LG CEO said that growing competition could force its hand, saying, quote, the company is considering all possible measures, including sale, withdrawal and downsizing of the smartphone business. LG did, however, tease a rollable smartphone at last week's Consumer Electronics Show and said it plans to release it sometime this year. 
John Ford, you've been covering the, the handset business for, for a good amount of time now. You're a veteran at doing this. This seems like it happens all the time. I think of Ericsson. I think of Nokia. Is this a hardware company that is just now going to throw in the towel because it has to? It can't compete with Samsung, Apple, and Huawei. The biggest thing, Don, that jumped out at me in this story is that it reminded me that LG is still making phones. I mean, seriously. I was like, you, you, you know, they, but the story, so they had, they, apparently they own about 13% of the U.S. market but only around 2% of the global smartphone market. Yeah, I mean, they're in that kind of low-budget Android phone space, but there's just not real money to be made there. You don't get that sort of profit that you need to be able to uh, invest and innovate and, and then come out with something really great. And we've seen so many industries go through this phase where uh, the, the, the bottom tier, the ones who don't have the brand, who can't charge the, the premium, get shaken out. Sony has avoided that thus far, in part because it's subsidized by their great uh, imaging sensor business. But LG, I mean, I got an LG refrigerator. That's great, but that doesn't help you in smartphones. Deirdre, I, I wonder. I mean, has it just become a, a kind of like an oligopoly? That, I mean, is it really? are we just going to cede control as consumers to three names worldwide that are going to just make the smartphones we're all going to use? That's a good question. I would say maybe five names. The Chinese smartphone makers have really uh, grabbed market share in recent years. You mentioned Huawei, but there's also Vivo and Xiaomi. What's interesting about Huawei is that it doesn't even have access to updates for its Android operating system, yet it still remains the number two player, although that balance of power is shifting. Its market share has decreased. Dom, the thing that stood out in this story for me, too, um, was that there was a report earlier this month that said LG was considering this, and LG branded that report completely false and without merit, only to a few weeks later confirmed that it was actually looking at perhaps shutting down this handset business. So uh, I thought that was interesting, too. You never know uh, when a company is going to come out and say that something's completely false and then say, oh, actually, it is happening. Maybe the report made them think about it. I mean, maybe... <laughs> Life comes at you fast in the Thunderdome there, guys. Especially I'm the a reporter. That bothered there. me. <laughs> All right, guys, our final story here. Baby boomers are shopping online. I thought they were already doing it, but apparently new data shows that consumers age 65 and up spent an average of $1,600 and change online in 2020 as the pandemic keeps people out of stores. That's a, believe it or not, 49% jump from 2019. That's huge for retailers because the older crowd, older folks out there, tend to have a lot more cash to spend and burn. According to the AARP, consumers age 50 plus spent nearly $8 trillion with a T in 2018, more than half of all spending in the entire United States. Mike Santoli, I don't know what it is about this. I always thought people just automatically spent online. But there's a massive part of the population that apparently is an untapped market for the likes of Amazon, Etsy, Wayfair, and everybody else out there. Is that what's driving the optimism in that trade? Yeah, there's always some late adopters. Uh, and I, I love that, you know, the story about this always has that the lead anecdote of, you know, the, the sort of retiree's kid who just persuades him that it's actually really easy to, to order things online, everyday goods. You don't have to go wandering. And of course, by necessity, you really have had to, to try and uh, explore these options. I can you know, vouch for people in my life. I do want to clarify that, uh, that on-screen graphic we said it was 50 plus, age 50 plus uh, was what was captured by that. Not all 50 plusers are boomers. I think it's, it's a very important point I need to make. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> Let's clarify the demographics there for sure. Mike Santoli, thank you very much for that. Also, Deirdre Bosa and John Ford as well. Great edition of Rapid Fire. Thank you all. 
Well, still ahead for the show, United has fallen more than 50% in this past year as the pandemic puts travel plans on hold. But CEO Scott Kirby is putting a turnaround plan in place, and he's making a big bet on leisure travel. We'll hear from him coming up next. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. It's no secret the airlines have had a tough go of it throughout the pandemic, but United Airlines has a rebuilding plan and it's ready for takeoff. Our own Phil LeBeau talked to CEO Scott Kirby and joins me now with the details here. Phil, is it optimistic for the second half of 2021? I think it's cautiously optimistic. I think United knows what it wants to do once the COVID-19 uh, virus starts to calm down and people say, yeah, I want to get back in the air. I want to take a vacation. I want to take a trip. I want to take a business trip, whatever it might be. That said, shares of United down, what, almost 6% today. That's because when the company reported its fourth quarter results yesterday, the fourth quarter is not what people are focused on. They're focused on when do you get back to cash flow break even or better. And what they said yesterday is, look, we see some encouraging signs. We see that the fourth quarter, or actually the third quarter and fourth quarter, those advanced bookings well beyond summer, they're improving. More people are saying, yeah, we plan on taking a trip. What is not encouraging is that United said, look, we have no way, given what we're seeing with COVID-19, to give you a timeline for when we expect to be break-even or better. Could be mid-year. If things improve dramatically with the virus, could be sooner than that. Here is CEO Scott Kirby this morning on Squawk Box. The good news is that regardless of what happens in the near term, uh, we have real confidence in the long term uh, and that there is a recovery, that there's a lot of pent-up demand for air travel. But until we can put, as a society, coronavirus in the rearview mirror, uh, it's going to continue to be a tough environment for aviation, for everyone that's involved in travel, tourism, and leisure. This is the chart that says it all right here. Look at the passenger levels, and you see how it starts to tick down at the end there. Dom, this is what we're going to see in the first quarter for the airlines. Just fewer people who are out there flying. It's always a weak time of year. That is especially the case right now as the pandemic continues to rage across the country. All right, Phil, 10 seconds here left. When it comes to United's outlook, what's the biggest key they need to take away from this? Uh, you got to wait for the vaccines. Once the vaccines roll, then you'll start to see United's results improve. All right, Phil LeBeau with the latest and exclusive with United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby. Thank you very much for that, Phil LeBeau. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.